Amen. Good morning, Redemption. Good to see everyone here. Um, this is, like Paul said, our second week in our Advent series, The Gift Exchange. And uh, we picked words, uh, to be honest with you, to kind of reclaim. Uh, maybe words that have, uh, don't look like they describe Christmas. If you were to look at people's faces, and joy is what we're going to talk about today. So uh, hang in there. We're going to confront you a little bit about joy. Uh, I typed in, and I'm not a computer literate guy. Everyone knows that. still think it's a fad. What do people think of Christmas? And it popped up a form. Now, I swear to you, this is exactly how it went down. I typed in one question. The first form came up. These are the first four responses to this question, okay? Some girl named Justy asked it. Um, how does everyone feel about this holiday? I'm not in the spirit yet. I always love Christmas music, but for some reason, this year feels different. And here comes four responses. Justy, Christmas stresses me out. We can barely pay our bills, let alone buy Christmas gifts. Every time I think of, I've got everything under control, I get another bill. I have no money for it. Sometimes I feel very Christmassy, other times I can't stand it, okay? This person keeps going on, and this is a real Debbie Downer. Uh, my hubby has decided that where we're going to go this year, since it's, it's our turn to go to the parents' place, I'm dreading it. Um, luckily, we don't have children. <laughs> oh, my happy... Um, we couldn't afford gifts anyway. How, how old are your kids? My cousin's son plays video games all the time, so the family's decided to put a no video game Christmas. It's going to be bad. <laughs> Second response. As I said, Christmas is the worst for me. I just want to give up and die rather than go through it every year. It depresses me as no other day of the year. I have felt that way since I was 11 or 12 years old. Very depressing for me. Here's the third response. Bah humbug. I hate Christmas. Loathe, despise, abhorred, detest. I worked in retail for 12 years, so my aversion to Christmas comes naturally, I guess. Besides, no one is in, is in a good mood around the holidays. They put so much stress on themselves and others, and everyone seems miserable. Why can't we just skip it? Here, here's the last one, because I don't think we could take any more. Um, well, most of the years I've enjoyed it, but last year when I was depressed, I didn't enjoy it at all. And this year, I'm also depressed, so I'll doubt I'll enjoy it either. I suppose the hardest part will be trying to act happy in front of relatives and friends. After all, Christmas is supposed to be a season of happiness, joy, and goodwill, right? Now, I didn't read any more, just the first four responses to the question. And, and by the way, my bet is those descriptions are more true than we would be willing to admit. In fact, I bumped into a few people out in the foyer before the service and said, are you ready for Christmas? Not really. Not looking forward to it. And so we need to talk as a church. We need to talk about this aspect of joy. We use the title gift exchange to talk about the things that Jesus' coming produces in his people. Last week, we talked about the peace that God brings, peace with God, the peace of God, the peace with other people. But today, we're going to talk about his joy, that Jesus is the joy of Christmas. He's the reason, that's the reason why he came, to provide joy to his people. So we just want to remind ourselves of that today. We're going to start by looking at the announcement the angels made about Jesus coming. So if you have a Bible, look to Luke chapter 2. We'll have the scriptures up on the screen for you if you don't own a Bible, but uh, it's always a reminder that uh, if you don't own one, we would love for you to have one. So if you go to a bookstore right across the, the courtyard there, we'll give you one for free. Luke chapter 2, very familiar text, uh, the announcement of the angel about the coming of Jesus, starting in verse 8. We're going to read to verse 11. I want you to hold your finger there and find also Philippians chapter 4, 
because we're going to give an imperative from, from the Apostle Paul here in a second, Philippians 4, 4. Let's start with Luke. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were feel, filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good no news of what? Great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now flip over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul gives an exhortation, kind of a command here. Um, very simple, you probably have it memorized. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Don't be afraid, you know it, go ahead. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice, right. Uh, some have called Philippians the epistle of joy. 16 times the subject of joy and God's people have been brought up linked to the gospel. Um, I love the context. I suppose that the context more than anything else in Philippians and of Philippians gives the power behind the words to have joy. Because if you remember, the Apostle Paul is in prison uh, facing possible execution, talking about joy. And in the midst of being in prison, dealing with his own life and opposition to it, he's dealing with someone trying to usurp his authority in a church. So here's Paul writing, in essence, the, the only way that Christians can find joy, and he anchors it in, in Jesus. So we want to talk about that this morning. Just two simple thoughts. One is, what's the truth behind joy, and why is it so hard to come by? Here's the first one, and you can see it obviously in verse 4. Joy is a command. I bet you didn't know that, but joy, uh, as Paul sees it, not only does he want to mention it once, it's so powerful he mentions it twice in verse 4. He doesn't suggest that it's a good idea to have joy, or does he suggest that it's, uh, it would be nice, or if you went to a seminar, read a book on joy, Paul commands joy out of God's people, okay? And Paul's pretty good at imperatives. Over and over again, in all the writings of Paul, he's pretty good at telling the church, you need to do this. You need to obey, you need to love, you need to forgive, okay? So out of all the things that Paul's instructed, joy gets the same kind of level of importance and credibility as all the other commandments, okay? Now, most of us struggle with that because we think joy is a byproduct of something happening to us, not an action to engage in, right? So things go well, joy comes out. But Paul suggests that joy is an action we engage in regardless of circumstances, okay? It's something that he commands. In fact, uh, David writes in Psalm 105, verse 3, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. So I know there are three groups of people in this room, to make it simple. There are those of you who would say, I love the Lord. You've seen your sin, you've seen your inability, you've understood the gospel and Jesus, and you by faith received Jesus, you're truly converted, and for you, right, you're understanding this thing from a Christian perspective. There are some of you who are here just simply because that's what you do at Christmas, or you're here because a friend invited you, but you would say of your own life, I, don't, I know about Jesus, but I'm not a Christian. And then there are that other group of people who pretend to be. After all, hasn't it been said that the easiest place to hide from God is in church? I mean, going through the motions, just do the thing, the religious thing. So that pretty much encapsulates all the folks that might be here today. But here's what David says about joy. Joy comes from those who seek hard after the Lord, who seek him, 
rejoice. So let's start with the first truth about joy. It's a commandment. So whatever you've ever thought about it, that it's a response to good things, a response to something, it's not that. It's a command, something, action to engage in. Here's the second thing that's true about joy. It's a mindset, not a circumstance. It's a mindset, not a a circumstance. Um, We instinctively respond to things like this. If, If it's not going my way, I'll make adjustments. I'll sort out some things and I'll fix some things that are bothering me and there will be a, 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 a response of joy. If that mechanism were true, then Paul would suggest a whole bunch of other things to get joy. It would be, but it would be ridiculous for Paul to suggest, hey, make sure you go have enough money so that you can have joy. Make sure that you're healthy so that you can have joy. Make sure that you have no problems so that you can have joy because all of those things are outside of our control, aren't they? For for instance, and this happens to us all the time, you can take really, really good care of yourself and still get cancer. It's the paradox of life. Someone will not eat all the garbage and die at 50 from a heart attack and somebody will eat at McDonald's and never... Um, but it's true. You have no idea. God numbers your days. And so you could stress over that and work on that, but you can't control it. You can study really hard and still not merit the grades that gets you the job that you're looking for. You can work really hard and still have someone fire you. You can take all of your money and invest it the sharpest way you know how and lose it all, right? Government goes sideways, houses lose their value, and you're left with nothing. That happens to people, things outside of your control. So Paul says about joy that it's, it's an attitude. It's something that you can control as opposed to something that you respond with. You, you can, in other words, choose to live a life of joy. It, it's a, an approach to life rather than a reaction to life. That's what joy is. And, and just to give it credence, here's Paul writing with all the authority he can have Being a guy in prison about to face execution says, listen, I have joy. You should have joy. Let me teach you about joy. There's another truth about joy. Not only is it a command and not only is it it a mindset, not a circumstance, but its source. And it's true of everything that God commands. Its source is in a relationship with Jesus. It's the same place that we talked about uh, uh, when we talked about peace last week. I want you to see a passage to prove my point. First Peter, turn to the right. First Peter chapter one. Now, the last couple of years we've been through First Peter, so this should be a familiar text to you. But I want you to see the source is friendship with God. Joy comes from one location, not multiple locations, one true source, and that is a friendship with, with God through Jesus, his son. First Peter chapter one. We're going to look at verses three through nine. I want you to look at the unbelievable description of what it's like to walk with Jesus, okay? Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now listen to verse 4. Powerful. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your face, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, now see him, you believe in him. And watch this. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see the source of joy? Here, here's, how, here's how Peter describes joy. He doesn't have language for it. Inexpressible is the word he uses to describe the joy that coming to know Christ and being covered and guarded by Jesus, by faith in him. That's what Peter talks about. So joy source is the same source for peace. The Bible describes us in our sin as broken in our sin, incapable of sorting this out, and it's the gospel of Jesus that heals us. The chasm we talk about all the time between the holy standard of God and my sinful inability has been bridged by, by Jesus. His work alone has brought us together. Sin has been totally paid for. The debt that every one of us who've ever lived is stacking up towards a holy God for the rebellion in our lives, Jesus has paid it all. God is satisfied about our, about our sin. Now, here's what happens, though. This is classically human. When you hear about joy, that it's not that it's a command, that it's not circumstantial, we go right, to, right away to try to work on our feelings. Well, joy, I'm going to change. I'm going to try to feel more joyous. I'm going to work on my feelings. But here's what happens. True joy comes one simple direction, one way, and that is Christ and the gospel. I don't want to oversimplify it, but that's the most powerful thing I've ever heard in my life. And I want to prove to you because Jesus mentions it in John chapter 15. So if you want to look over to John, Jesus is talking about this idea of abiding in him. And the source of all these things we're talking about is our proximity, our dependency in Jesus. So he says this in, in chapter 15, starting in verse 9. So it's kind of proven the point that it's not a technique, it's not a feeling, this is about abiding. So here's what he says. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. The word abide just simply means to dwell, to, to linger, to endure. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now listen to this last verse, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be what? Full. Okay, the word means complete, lacking nothing. It has the idea of overflow. So when Jesus is talking about joy, he's talking about joy sourced in him, abiding in him, enduring in him, complete in him, so that what happens to the joy part of our life is that it superabounds because of our proximity to Christ. Christ is the source of all joy. Now, I wonder what it would be like, what would happen to the joy in our life if we would just consider what it is that God has already accomplished for us. Now, I know there are things that you wish were sorted out and you had answers to. Let, let's not go there yet. Let's just simply look at what God has already said about you and what he's already done for you. Let's not go any farther than what's absolutely certain in your mind, in the truth right now. Do you remember the uh, shame of sin? Like if we're going to use words to describe what it's like as uh, Christians, 
in our process of understanding our need, there, there's a word that, that every one of us knows what it does to our, how we feel. It's the idea of shame. It, it, we all have stories, right? We all have gory stories. We have stories we wish nobody ever knew about us, wishes that kind of, they kind of just went away somewhere. Um, we pray that we'd lose our memory so we couldn't remember that. That kind of condemning shame. Here's what the Bible says about shame. The Bible says that Jesus came to bear the shame. The shame is real. It can't be ignored. The shame is yours because you've rebelled against a holy God. But here's what God did. He comes to this world, takes on flesh. He goes to the cross, and he is ridiculed. He is made fun of. He is naked. He's exposed for you. And all the shame that you do deserve for all of your rebellion against God, he drank it all for you. Amen? So we all deal with that word, shame. What, what about words like stain? You know, the stain of sin, like it, it kind of, we're kind of exposed, like every one of us who've rebelled against God have this guilty as charged truth about us. Like you can't get it off, you can't wash it off. You know, how many times have you heard that story? Somebody who has one of those days, one of those nights, and they feel like they want to wash themselves so much to try to get rid of this thing that stains them, but it stains them from the inside out. And so here's what Jesus did with the stain of sin. He covered it. He covered it in his precious blood so that when God sees us, he no longer sees the, the stain of sin or the guilty charges of sin or the inability of our own life or our perpetual wanderings. God covers us so completely. He remembers the sin no more. He sees it not, right? That's what he does with the stain of sin. What about the rebellion? Here's what the scriptures say. It says that we are at war with God at enmity. You might not feel that way. You might not have ever written it down. You've never said out loud, when well, I'm hating God today and I'm fighting against God and his will. You just live that way. It's humanly, sinfully instinctive. You just kind of are at war with the things of God. And the Bible says, in spite of what you know, you are in rebellion. And here's what God did through Christ. He made peace. He took this war and he actually died to satisfy his own standard for you. And he made us friends of the king Somebody smile here. This is all good. This is not bad. This is where joy comes in. Practice, okay? What about the um, crippledness of sin? You know, dead in your transgressions and sin, broken and twisted, incapable, can't discern, can't see, can't perceive the things of God. We are so sick. And Jesus came and healed us. That's the words the, the New Testament uses, right, to describe what he's done for us. So can you just take a, a second and just contemplate the ways in which God has covered your shame and covered your stain, the ways that God has provided peace with himself and healed you. He has forgiven all of it through Jesus. Amen? All, all of it. Joy comes one way, by knowing you're dearly loved by God, that you are totally forgiven, not because of any work that you have to do, simply by his grace alone. And that no matter what happens to you, no matter what experientially happens to you, you will eventually say, it's all good. It's more than all good. It's great because God did it. That's a perspective through the lens of Jesus, who is the source of all joy. Amen? Tom says it all the time. 
The rest is glory. And that's true. There are still the ramifications of the broken world and the sin in which we perpetrate against each other. There's still the confusion of what we don't see. I get all that. But as a believer, it's only going to get great after this. As a believer, we're going to be with the Father, and the sickness will be gone, and the sin will be gone, and we will be stored perfectly as God intended for us. Amen? That's the future hope. It's knowing that the greatest joy a person can ever know is the joy of knowing your maker intimately. John Piper said it this way. Listen carefully because this is powerful. God's quest to be glorified and our quest to be satisfied reach their goal in one experience, our delight in God, which overflows in praise. For God's praise is the sweet echo of his own excellence in the hearts of his people. For us, praise is the summit of satisfaction that comes with living in fellowship with God. The stunning implication of this discovery is that all the omnipotent energy that drives the heart of God to pursue his own glory also drives him to satisfy the hearts of those who seek him, their joy in him. The good news of the Bible is that God is not at all disinclined to satisfy the hearts of those who hope in him, just the opposite. The very thing that can make us happiest is what God delights in with all his heart and with all his soul, his own glory, amen? So where does joy come from? It comes from that perspective, not our performance. It comes from confidence in God's love and knowing that we belong to him. We are his possessions. We are a royal priesthood, chosen people. That's all true, right? Collective nod, all true. So why is it so hard? I, I know enough of you, and I watch some of your faces, that uh, you have the look of bitterness about you. Some do. Some of you are joyless in your demeanor. You hear about joy, and we might as well be telling you how to win Powerball, because it's never going to happen. Joy, really? No, not for me. We're going to sing a song in just a little bit. A song you're very familiar with, Joy to the World, right? But you're going to think, well, I don't feel it. I mean, I envy Paul because he can have joy in the midst of all circumstances, even it's not my experience. Joy doesn't happen for me like that. Why is it so difficult? Let me start with the obvious first possibility. You're not a believer. There's a huge possibility that you're here and you don't know the joy of the Lord because you don't know the Lord of joy. Is that not a possibility? Like, like many of you have a great relationship with the church, just not with Jesus. You grew up in it. You know what to do. You're like trained monkeys. You come in, you go out, you do everything you're told, but you don't know Christ. Everything you do is sourced from you. Trying to make certain that you cover your bases, but you're not resting in the finished work of Jesus. You're trusting in your own goodness. You're trying to manufacture joy. That's all you've got. You have no true source of joy because you don't know the source of it. So joy is elusive. I'm telling you to have joy. Like Paul says, rejoice always. And you kind of look at that like Mount Everest. There's no way that joy is going to happen for me. Maybe because you don't know the Lord of joy. Maybe because you have never dealt with your sin. Sin blinds us, it twists us, it lies to us. 
Sin is constantly offering us a solution to what we feel or our problems that we experience, and it just twists it. It just turns it, and you go bite a little bit of it, and it burns you more, and it keeps sending you down. And every option you choose out there, it doesn't matter what it is, anything you go for leaves you wanting because that's all it can do. It can't provide joy because it's not the source of it, right? So have you confessed that? We're going to talk about this in just a second, but it's obvious to me, if you're sitting here today and joy sounds like a foreign language to you, and I said to you, well, maybe you're not a believer, and you're doing the triage of your own life, you're assessing your own life, as you should, and the Bible says that's a good thing to do unless, of course, you fail the test. Examine your heart. Do you see your sin? Do you want your sin covered? All those things we talked about, like your shame, gone, and the crippledness healed. And all the insecurities and false religions kind of done away with so you can serve the living God. If you want that truth, then, then trust in the work that Jesus has done. He came to this earth, died on a cross to totally satisfy his own standard for my life. When I put my faith and trust in him, God now views me through him, not by my own life. Do you see that? That's where joy comes from. Because if I wake up tomorrow and God somehow says, never mind, you know, we're going to plan B. Plan B is I'm going to start looking at you. Well, there will be no joy. There'll be nothing but like gnashing of teeth from then on, right? Because if God decides to look at me as me without the covering of Jesus, well, I have hell to gain. But he doesn't. Maybe you're here today and I say join you, I can't do that. Maybe it's because you don't know the source of it. For the rest of us, I think sometimes joy is hard to find because we're confusing joy and happiness with having life go our way. Right? Our world has perpetrated this, perpetrated this definition, right? Joy equals pleasant experiences, right? It's like, it's like uh, food for some. It equals pleasant experience. Now, remember who wrote Philippians. R- remember this guy, Paul, was the one who said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I've been beaten, I've been persecuted, I've been stoned, I've been shipwrecked, I've been hungry, I've been naked, I've been without, I've been neglected, I've been out on the sea, I've done all this for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. That's why I did it. All of that, fi- that pales in comparison to having a relationship with Christ. Clearly, Paul didn't see joy connected to having things go his way. So I'm going to tell you what you already know. There are going to be bad things that happen to you. You're going to get sick. You're going to run out of money. You're going to have friends and loved ones totally abandon you and neglect you. You're going to have disappointment. You're going to have people fail you. You're going to have needs that have no answer. That is part of the sinful human condition. It is. There is no way to fix that. But here's what happens to people who have a perspective of the gospel, that Jesus is the cover of my needs and my sin. Tough times make us want to see what the Father is up to and find joy. Because God is good. And just like a father to a very young child knows exactly what he should prevent his child from doing or knowing so that he will be safe and happy, our God sees from his vantage point over his children and says, listen, I'm going to keep you safe and happy. And we go, eh, like freaking out that we don't have what we think will satisfy. We have to understand as believers that God is writing his story, not 
not mine. Now, I know I'm a part of the many, many pixels that make up this wonderful, beautiful picture of God's grace in the world. But he's talking about himself, not me. This is not about me. This is not about you. This is all about him. Amen? Amen. He is writing his story. And someday, here's what I promise, all those pieces are going to come together. And we're going to praise him for it. We're going to say, you are all wise and all knowing. Who could take this mess and weave that story? Only you can. It's better than all good. It's great. It's great what God has done. Why is uh, joy hard to come by? Because when we talk about joy, we have a tendency to want to manufacture it, and these artificial efforts never work. They don't work. Like if they worked, I would tell you to run off and chase them, but they don't work, and you've learned that. You have scars all over yourself because you've learned it yourself. Artificial methods of achieving joy do not get us there. In, In other words, our heart is an idol factory. That's what it does. It conjures other gospels all the time, other satisfactions, other joys, other loves, and we go after them, and, and God in his love um, presses on us to reveal to us those things won't satisfy. They were never me- you were never meant to be satisfied by such a small thing. God wired us, made us, created us to be satisfied in the ultimate thing. Who is Jesus? So one of the lovely, most amazing, yet most irritating things God does for his children is frustrate our pursuit of joy apart from him. Has that happened to you? Of course it has. You get all ramped up for something to make you happy, and then it just doesn't quite fulfill. Or you get there, and you thought it would be this, and it's really more like that. Or you get disappointed, or somebody lets you down, and ultimately, you're left kind of there with nothing to show for it, and that's God's loving way of saying, listen, you weren't made to be happy in those things. You were not made to be satisfied in temporal. You are made to be satisfied in your creator. Anybody want to say amen to that? That's the truth. So even though it kind of frustrates us at times, we have to remember that God will not have it another way. He's a jealous God. He will not be rivaled with. So whatever versions of I need this, we'll see, right? We'll see. God will sort that out. Why is it so difficult for us? I think we have a perspective problem. I don't think we see the big picture very well. One of the things I love of a lot of things about the Apostle Paul, in fact, turn to Philippians chapter 1 real quick. One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul is his uh, seemingly personality or demeanor. To me, Paul's aggressive, he's blunt, um, and he's tenacious. I love his tenacity, and I love what he's tenacious about. He is tenacious, get this, for the big picture. If anyone could sit back and say, listen, life stinks, and then you die, he could say that. But Paul had a perspective on God's kingdom. Look at verse uh, 21 of chapter 1, and tell me what Paul's big picture perspective is. For me to live is what? And to die is? Paul looks at his life and whatever, what, whatever they can do to me, they can kill me, but I win. Because I get Jesus. Look, look at chapter 3, verse 8. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything that anybody would care to count this side of heaven, I consider it rubbish, dung, compared to one thing, Jesus. Knowing Jesus. One more. Skip down to verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. You ready for his one thing he does? His tenacious perspective? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What was, what was Paul's tenacious perspective? God's kingdom, period, period. Not his comfort, not his, not his human satisfaction, not his, not his joys that could be had outside of the kingdom. He had one focus. God, you're doing something. I, I think we struggle with uh, tunnel vision, to be honest with you. I'm not, a, I'm not a very, well, I'm not an artist at all. I don't like to paint. I don't even like to paint the walls in my house. I let my wife do that, right? I don't even understand colors. My wife bought me this shirt. Somebody thinks I have taste. I don't have taste. I just wear what I'm told. Um, <laughs> but here's, here's what our life is like. We're so into the tension of our life or the, the disappointment of our life or the pain of our life or the, the, the result of sin in our life, and we're so close to our story. All we can see is that issue, and God's doing so much bigger, so much bigger. He is painting this beautiful picture of his grace, and you can't see it because you're standing next to the wall, kind of like this. Tell me what this is. To me, it looks like a mess. It looks like a first grade uh, art project. Now watch what happens when you get away from the wall. You can see a little bit of perspective. See, God's doing a painting, sort of, with our lives. Not just individually, but collectively. God is about his bride of which all the believers in the world are now pulled together to create this expression of his wonderful grace in this world. And some, it looks like, they have it wired. They have it so easy. Life just seems to be clicking by for them. They don't have the same problems I have. And then I look at my life and I go, wow, this seems to be too much, God. And here's what I know. If joy is escaping you, you're standing this close to the, to the picture. And you need to get back and get perspective. Because God is taking your pain and your fears, and your worries, and he's doing something in your life that collectively with all these other lives that he's working in as well will do this wonderful story of this awesome God in a sinful world. Do you believe that? I'm going to try it again. Do you believe that? Yes. yes. So... Here's what happens to us. We see trials and pain as some experience that we need to get away from as fast as possible rather than the beautiful way that God grows his kids. James 1 says, consider it joy when you encounter various trials of different kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops what? Perseverance so that you'll be mature and complete, not lacking Sometimes we see the nose. We ask God, God, could you do this? Would you do this? And we see the nose as failure, rather God um, leading us to something better. So, sometimes we see loneliness as God's abandonment as opposed to God drawing his children closer. 
Got to get perspective, church. We lose it. So what do you do with this? I have to start where uh, it makes sense. If you don't know Jesus, then you don't have joy. And you won't find joy. It'll never happen for you. It'll be the equivalent of doing drugs. You'll have a moment of high with the absolute enslavement of the drug. It won't work. You can bring your mess. You can bring your inability. You can fall into Jesus and say, I'm a sinner. Please save me. And he promises based on that faith that he will. And then begins this wonderful relationship of joy. Not circumstantial joy. Not stuff anchored in what happens or doesn't happen to you. Stuff anchored in his promise to be faithful and good to his kids until the end. Amen? If you're a believer and you're struggling with joy, I would suggest to you, I bet I could look at your life and say that you're not anchored in the source of joy. Like you're living independent of this relationship and you are not happy about it. You don't have joy because you're not spending time with God. This is not complicated. If it was complicated, he wouldn't give it to us. Okay? He gives it to simple people. Here's how simple it is. Read the word. Worship God. Get in community with other believers. Talk about Jesus. Talk about your struggles. It's all good. If you want to go rogue and independent, then I can tell you then you're going to be without joy. Stay close to the source of joy, and you'll have it. The Bible says, seek him. Let's use another word, chase him. Chase him. And here's what he promises. If you chase him, you will have him. He will be found by you. That's the promise. But if you choose to not, then you're going to feel the weight of your life. One last thing. Spend some time reflecting. Where did God find you? Do you remember his all-consuming, you can't out his grace thoughts? His unbelievable blessing and the inheritance that he's going to give and is giving to you now? Yeah, you should. So where is the joy? George Burns said this. <laughs> Happiness and joy is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. And he's tr it's true. Um, here's how Piper finishes that thought. The enemy of worship is not that our desire for pleasure and joy is too strong. It's because it's too weak. We have settled for a home, a family, a few friends, a job, a television, a microwave oven, an occasional night out, a yearly vacation, and perhaps a new computer. We've accustomed ourselves to such meager, short-lived pleasures that our capacity for joy has shriveled, and so our worship has shriveled. Don't let your worship decline to the performance of mere duty. Don't let the childlike awe and wonder be choked out by unbiblical views of virtue. Don't let the scenery and poetry and music of your relationship with God shrivel up and die. You have capacities for joy that you can scarcely imagine. Don't settle for less than the ultimate because true joy and satisfaction is found in one place, a relationship with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, we praise you today for what you have given us freely by faith in Christ. God, we confess that our tendency is to wander and lose focus and perspective. God, maybe today we got a little back. Maybe today we can see maybe the broader scope of what you may be doing. God, confront our tendencies to settle for so of small things. 
God, help us long for the ultimate which you promised to deliver in Jesus, we pray. Amen.